0: On this episode of AvTalk, we begin the year on a somber note to discuss the downing of Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 in Tehran and the effects of prohibitions by certain countries on flights in Iran and Iraq. We also dig into some of the new documents released by Boeing regarding the 737 MAX, and things do not look good. Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with- Jason Rabinowitz. Hi, Ian. How was your New Year's? Hello, Jason. The New Year, personally, the New Year is off to a a decent start, but it has not been a good year so far. No, the past two weeks, uh, we're recording on January 14th. The past two weeks has been a very long year. I'm done. I'm happy to be done with 2020 already. All right here comes 2021. All right, bring it on. Right, no, not, just, none, of, none of that's right. That's not how it works? No. Okay. I think we have to address reality. All right. Well, then, then let us address reality. A quick recap of the last two weeks and then we'll take things in order as, <laughs> as it works. Piece by piece this time. So the year since we last recorded we've had a Fokker 100 in Kazakhstan briefly left the ground and came back down skidded along the side of the runway and impacted a building that led to the first fatal accident of the year then there were missile launches from Iran into Iraq in retaliation for for the US killing an Iranian general That led to changes in how airlines were using the airspace. That same night, a Ukraine International Airlines 737 was shot down while departing Tehran by Iranian surface-to-air missiles. All the while, the 737 MAX saga continues with the additional release of documents and messages between seven three seven pilots that do not paint a, a pretty picture at all. On the the stranger side, federal, state, and local officials are hunting mystery drones in Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming, hmm. and in. Not quite breaking news but happened earlier today, a Delta 777 dumped fuel in return uh, in preparation for an emergency return to to Los Angeles and the fuel fell on a school playground. So we have enough news in the first 2 weeks of the year to fill many episodes of the podcast. So we will I guess just start where where do we even go from here? I don't want to know. I really do not want to know.
1: Now, well, fortunately, we have a bulleted list that we sometimes read off of. So let's just go top to
0: bottom. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So on the 7th into the 8th of January, the Iranian military fired missiles towards a base that houses Iraqi and U.S. troops in Iraq. Those missiles. Caused some structural damage and things like that, but but no one was killed, as far as as the reporting I, I've seen. What then happened was a quick succession of notems issued the the notice to airmen named long before. Um, So the the kind of the anachronistic title. Uh, But saying from the FAA saying, don't fly over Iraq, don't fly over Iran, don't fly over the Persian Gulf and don't fly over the Gulf of Oman. Right. Which only impacts airlines
1: uh, based, I believe just based in the US, which would impact very few if any flights
0: actually operating in that region. Right. So at the beginning of the night after this had happened, it, it looked like there wasn't going to be much impact to aviation because of this particular kind of retaliatory missile strikes. and There were other airlines that said, we're going to follow those – not necessarily follow the FAA's prohibitions, but we agree with them and we will also not fly over. Right. I think notably uh, British Airways was one of, if not the first to make a U-turn and find another route. Right. They were coming up from – I believe it was a flight from one of the British Airways destinations in India back to London. and They reached Kuwait and decided that they were going to go through Saudi Arabia and Egypt rather than travel up through Iraq. So as the night went on, other airlines made made changes to their flight paths and even earlier in the week a few airlines had announced that they weren't going to fly over Iranian airspace, notably Singapore which announced on the 6th of January before the the missile strikes that they would not be flying over Iran anymore and they moved their flights to the north. Up to passing through kind of Azerbaijan and, and Tajikistan on their way to Singapore from their, their European destinations. And it looked like there would be kind of a headache as far as civil aviation was concerned, uh, you know, longer routings, flights would have to fly around, but there, there wouldn't be a huge impact. Right. This is all things we've seen
1: before. They're unfortunate. Geopolitics are annoying, and sometimes flights have to add literally hours on top of already quite long flights, but it's doable. You work with it.
0: Right. And like we've talked about, especially with the Pakistan, India, Afghanistan airspace closures in early 2019, these are things that the airlines are closely following, they're planning for, they have contingencies and things like that. Then in the early morning hours in Tehran, a Ukrainian international airline 737 departed. and About two minutes after departure, we lost the ADS-B signal and then there started to be reports that the aircraft had crashed.
1: Right. I mean, when we first started looking at the ADS-B data, it was pretty clear that something Absolutely catastrophic had happened extremely quickly as the data looked normal. It looked like they were on their regular departure path from the airport, like every other time and every other flight before them that day. But then the data just kind of stopped. And that's not something you typically see in crashes or incidents like this. Usually there's some sort of indication that something is beginning to go wrong, but this was just a, a stop of the data.
0: Exactly. There there was no change in speed or altitude or or anything like that or even heading that would provide an indication that something had happened. And in past incidents and, and crashes, we've seen, you know, a dramatic increase in vertical speed, negative vertical speed, an increase in ground speed, and a loss of altitude, or or some combination of those. Here All three receivers that had been receiving data from PS752 stopped in the same second. The data just stopped coming. And that was an indication that something catastrophic had happened. And and we didn't know what yet. And so, for the past week, a number of organizations have done some incredible reporting and some incredible open source reporting through verifying video and things like that and that led to uh, on the 11th of January the Iranian government taking responsibility for shooting the aircraft down
1: right and and Pretty much from the second word had gone out that an an aircraft was down, the Iranian officials were immediately blaming it on mechanical issues of some sort, which which is impossible to know that early on, especially in the complete absence of any transmissions from the flight crew on board that aircraft. For obvious reasons, they didn't make any, but that was the initial word out of Iran and that proved obviously to not be the case.
0: Yeah, and so the pressure that arose to conduct a proper investigation from Ukraine and, and from elsewhere really kind of drove a an unrelenting kind of drumbeat of, of what actually happened, and I think that a lot of the visual evidence that came out is really what made it impossible for Iran not to acknowledge their responsibility in shooting down the aircraft, and. and I mean, there are a number of previous examples. Very sadly, that this has happened before. Where, several times, yeah, several times, where a civilian airliner has mistakenly been shot down by by military. I mean, the, the United States shot down an Iranian, uh, you know, civil airliner, and, and has happened with with South Korea, and it has happened. There's a, another example that that I'm is is escaping me but which we're we're going to talk about kind of tangentially in, in just a moment but these things have happened before and so the question that i've seen a number of times that that i just don't i haven't had a good answer to is i mean why didn't they just shut down the airspace
1: yeah that's i mean there are a number of questions everyone should be running through their head right now is is a obviously how did the Iranian military misidentify this aircraft so horribly and shoot down a civilian airliner departing out of their own civilian airport B why was it departing in the first place and why wasn't there any coordination between the aviation authorities and the military and C should the airline have been operating at all and i not to um throw you Ukrainian airlines under under the uh UIA under the bus here but other airlines were operating in and out of Iran as well, and not just little airlines or, or, or airlines you may not have heard of before, but Lufthansa and Austrian were still operating
0: even after Lufthansa, Austrian, Turkish. Yeah, the, these are you know not not small airlines no, that and just fly domestically. And I think Iran. there's
1: definitely hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but I would say we all knew but didn't know what happened to the UIA seven thirty seven. We we couldn't say it because you don't want to speculate, but it's it, it was in not even the back of our head. It was in the, the front of our head at that point. And I, I feel like it was reckless for other airlines to continue operating flights, not only into Iran, but into that particular airport. Probably wasn't going to happen again, but until the situation was made clear, I don't think anybody should have been operating in or out of that aer- airport.
0: Yeah. and The, the one thing that, that I, I keep coming back to is mm-hmm. as far as like why flights were departing. I can certainly understand not wanting to be stuck there. Yeah, but flights were still arriving; they were still dispatching to that airport, right? And but that's a whole another question. I, I'm I'm kind of walking one step back to the fact that why was PS seven five two departing? Right. In my mind, I can understand the we don't want to you know stuck here. Uh, we don't want to have our aircraft stuck here. We want to make sure our passengers get out and our crew gets out and, and things like that. That part I, I can understand. The dispatching to Tehran even after – I mean, Lufthansa dispatched their flight the following day and then turned around mid-flight. Only after Iran had
1: confessed to accidentally shooting down the aircraft. But I mean, come on. At that point, we all knew what happened. We weren't saying it, but we all knew. And to dispatch flights at that point seemed just reckless, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's a decision that that I, I can certainly disagree with. Uh, I mean, but what has happened now is Iranian airspace, Iraqi airspace, are, are generally off limits to well, not generally, but are off limits to U.S. carriers. And, and like we said, you know, when, not when a we started, huge problem. Not a huge problem or for, for cargo for US carriers uh, than passenger. Yeah, we ran the numbers, and there were about two dozen flights by. U.S.-based cargo carriers, uh, so UPS, FedEx, and then some dedicated cargo carriers like uh, uh, Kalita and Polar and Atlas and things like that, that that pass through either Iraqi or Iranian airspace. The initial prohibition on the the flights over the Persian Gulf were a little bit hard to and not hard to interpret, but hard to manage. And so those restrictions have been relaxed a little to allow for the basically overwater arrival section. Into places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and, and things like that, so that they can continue to operate to the to the major Middle East hubs. But European carriers have followed suit, and certainly a lot of Asian carriers ha- have followed suit as well, avoiding Iran and Iraqi airspace, so that the the airspace is is cleared out quite considerably, given the number of, of flights that that pass through. Iran and Iraq on a daily basis. I mean, the, the numbers have have thinned. There there are still a good chunk of flights operating through Iraq, especially, and Qatar Airways continues to operate through Iran, mostly because they don't really have anywhere else to go. But the airspace has has changed once again um, with flights avoiding the area, and I, I shudder to think what would happen if Pakistan and India. Have another issue, where the airspace there gets closed. Yeah. Well, what's left at that point? Yeah. So to kind of give a rundown of of what's happened, flights to East Asia and and Southeast Asia have generally shifted northward. Uh, so where they were formerly transiting Iraqi airspace or Iranian airspace, they're now going through the India Pakistan Afghanistan Tajikistan Azerbaijan into Turkey. That that kind of arc some flights are coming india across the arabian sea into oman saudi arabia up through egypt and and into europe flights like qantas's qf9 and qf10 have had to to reroute extensively and qf9 from perth to london has has reduced its passenger load in order to carry enough fuel to to make it without a stop those small impacts are are there but but their impacts nonetheless I thought it would be a good idea to to kind of talk about why all of these flights are flying in this area to begin with. And I mentioned a few minutes ago we were going to talk about Malaysia and that's kind of where this comes in. Because if you look at the great circle routes between Asia and Europe, they don't pass through Iran and Iraq. They pass through Ukraine. And so before the downing of MH17, most flights to Eastern and Southeast Asia from Europe pass through Ukraine. They went Ukraine, Russia, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and and so on and so forth. The downing of MH17 changed the safety calculus, I think with very good reason, and moved flights into the Iran-Iraq corridor, the rise of ISIS in Iraq and the civil war in Syria pushed things and squeezed things into Iran for a period of time. A few years ago, Iraq, to, to much to, to great fanfare, reopened their airspace and kind of pulled a lot of the traffic that had been transiting through Iran back into Iraqi airspace, still avoiding Syria. And so there's this compression that's happened over time. The available routes and the safe airspace, safe places to transit the airspace to get between Europe and North America and the Middle East and, you know, to get between Europe and Asia. So there's this kind of running out of places to put planes, you know, should anything else happen. Where airspace is closed further. I think that's a real concern at this point.
1: I'm looking at some of the routing that is going around uh, Ukraine right now, and I'm looking at a Bolivia flight from Minsk to what is this flight in Georgia? And they're probably adding easily an extra hour of flight because they fly completely around Ukraine. They just skirt the border, east of the border, and fly over Russia. But this should be a simple straight line shot between Minsk and Georgia. But they have to go well out of their way. And uh, this is becoming all too common, it's seemingly in various regions. And you're right, it, the available airspace is becoming narrower and narrower, narrower. And as aviation is ramping up, we're getting more and more flights, but running out of places to put them.
0: Yeah. And Saudi Arabia a few years ago opened additional routes. Because before that they hadn't been they they 're out of the way they hadn't been the the transit area that they are now and Egypt as well, the long line of traffic that's transiting Egypt between Europe and india or or the middle eastern hubs i mean just it doesn't make geographic sense, but the geopolitics of the region and and the the kind of compression of that airspace has a big effect on how long these flights are and where they're going but it's all done in a safety consideration so i mean that that's the good thing about this that airlines are looking at and they've certainly i think since MH17 become much more safety conscious and much more i don't want to call it overly cautious but much more cautious in erring on the side of, well, the the NOTAM says not below flight level 260. Well, maybe we'll just fly around anyway. Yeah, probably a
1: good idea. But It's also important to to note that for those of you who are not staring at the Flight Rider 24 app for most of the day, that uh, the air seems Vast and open, but flights don't operate wherever and whenever they want. There are strictly defined corridors and basically highways in the sky that flights need to adhere to, and they need to go over specific spots to enter or exit a country at specific altitudes and It's complicated, and you take a few of those routes away and it becomes a big problem since flights don't just go where they want to go
0: yeah it and we can I'll work up some. Some maps to kind of illustrate this that we can put in the show notes. Oh, good! I gave you homework. Uh, yeah, I, I love homework. And you can follow on. We, we've done this before for for the India Pakistan restrictions, where there were certain airways that were available at certain times in certain directions with certain exit points and certain entry points, and you it, you know it got to the point where they were starting to become like baseball statistics, where you know. He's never missed a, a pitch on Tuesdays when the sun is, you know, behind home plate, and he, someone was eating a hot dog, and you know, you, you kind of have to A B C D E F G, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, no, no one can follow these restrictions. But again, it's all done to to keep the flying public safe. So hopefully, hopefully, we never have to talk about this type of thing again. Yeah, well, hopefully here. Hopefully. Yeah. I, I mean, I, my favorite kind of podcast is when, when we do stupid stuff and then we get to talk about it, you know, like, uh, I don't know, racing around the world in a, one of us gets a 787, the other one gets a rowboat or something. I don't know. Huh. But Can I, I get mean, the plane? Yeah. We'll, we'll switch halfway through and see what happens. But I, I've just been, you know, that this didn't need to happen is I guess, you know, what I've been wrestling with. And we try not to at least I try not to editorialize on the podcast anymore because I don't know how many people want to hear me drone on about that. But I'm going to take the liberty and say that this didn't need to happen. No, there, I, there were so many ways for this not. To I don't happen. think anyone would argue
1: that point, and it's not even self advertising. Yeah, pull out your damn phone, look at Flight Rider 24, or any one of the other numerous options, and see. Oh, that's actually a civilian airliner taking off from our own airport. Like there are so many ways this should have been prevented, and seemingly none of that happened.
0: Yeah. So I guess I don't even want to call it the good that came out of this, but just the one of the important points I think that, that came out of this is that we found out what happened relatively quickly. And that allowed I I think a strength in decision making to avoid the airspace.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, I'm unconvinced they would have fessed up to it had video from multiple angles not come out, so I'm happy that happened.
0: But it's uh not a great situation. So that's the update on Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, the continuing situation in Iran and Iraq, which seems to have reached stasis at this point. No real new information in the past few days other than kind of the the lengthening of the NOTAMS That say you can't fly in that particular area for a number of countries. EAS is out with theirs. Germany, UK have their own. Uh, Canada issued their first ever security notice regarding this situation. So I think that's how how serious some people are taking. And it affects one Air Canada flight. (laughs) Better one one than none. Yeah, I mean I mean, I I think that kind of gives an indication about how serious regulators are taking this situation. Not even the one gets through. No, so there we are. There, let's can we talk about something good before we get to the rest of the bad? Yes, let let's do that. What okay. would you like to talk about?
1: Uh, an airplane that looks like a whale. An airplane that looks like a whale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, this is going to be a real easy one. But Airbus's Beluga XL began operations yesterday, today, the, earlier this week. Earlier this week. That'll work. That's but, nice but and they, generic. They
0: announced it, I think, today,
1: Excellent. and they, they put so. Out, uh, for those who are somehow unfamiliar, the previous iteration of the Beluga, the, I guess, the non-XL was based off the A300, right? Not the A310. I
0: think it was the A300. We'll say yes, sure. and if we are wrong, because there's a, good chance, there's a 50-50 chance we're wrong. Yeah. A300, you know, let's go with that. A300 or a
1: not big enough to carry the components that Airbus needs it to these days. so They built a bigger one based off the um, A330CO and yes. they painted a whale nose
0: on the front, and it's weird looking, but it's bigger. It is bigger. So, so this one, and we, I think we've, we've covered this before, but just a quick refresher this one can carry two wings for the A350 and additional components for the A320 line. So, it basically doubles the capacity for the A350 wings and, and then adds capacity for the, the A320 line to, to carry things around. So, it's now they're cool. actually. Carrying stuff, yeah. I, I've been inside the cargo belly of a beluga, a regular beluga, before, and the thing's
1: massive. So to think about a, an extra large version of that is pretty fascinating.
0: They're so funny looking because they drop the the flight deck down. It's weird. you actually have to like climb down a little stairway to get into the yeah, flight deck. It's weird. So like that's the kind of the funny thing to me about the the whole airplane As you, you you kind of have to get down into. It's like a sports car, but it's a huge giant massive thing on the back of a sports car. But then it's just a normal A330 uh flight deck. There you go. Yeah. I've asked the pilots when we did the A330 neo route proving, I was talking to the A330 pilots and I asked him, I go, Well, do you have you have you flown the, the blue gun? He goes, yeah. And I said, is it he goes, it's not, it's no different than than flying any other A330. And and the same has been said about the dreamlifter the dreamlifter yeah it, it Miami rick on twitter has have posted about it on a number of occasions and says that there there are there are some some practical differences because you don't have a, a pressurized cargo hold but other than that it, it's just like flying any any 747 so it, it's interesting that you know the, these planes get kind of Frankensteined together, but then it's just like flying a normal plane. Yeah. The Beluga looks a little more like it's supposed to look like that rather than the Dreamlifter, which just looks like Frankenplane. The Dreamlifter looks like some like the plane ate – it looks like a snake that ate something that was too big to eat. Right. It's not
1: natural looking. It's pretty in its own way, but the Beluga just kind of looks like it was in A330 that something went wrong during assembly and the, <laughs> yeah. the back half is bigger than the front half. The Dreamlifter just looks like, what the hell happened to that thing? But they're both they both have their
0: they're both pretty they're cool Let's take a quick break catch our breath oh, and then we'll goodness. come back and talk about some more bad news this time for Boeing Welcome back for our biweekly Boeing Something. something. We, uh, we don't know
1: what we're going to call we'll, the rest we'll of We'll figure this out. It's the bi-weekly update on what has Boeing
0: done this time. Bi-weekly Boeing bad something. Uh, uh, if you have ideas, it, podcast 24com fr- To those 24. of you who com. say
1: we're, we're not fair, we're, we're harsh on Boeing instead of Airbus, if Airbus has a string of stupid events, we will create the Airbus bi-weekly Update. Also, to well, be named.
0: Yeah, we'll, we will brand any screw up we by are an equal any opportunity hater. Yes, this has nothing to do with with Boeing versus Airbus or anything like that. This has everything to do with objectively terrible things happening. Yes, and, and they are terrible. So let's back up and take this chronologically because I, I think I think we can separate these things and then we'll bring them back together at the end. So here we go. The first piece of news that came out is that after basically spending the entire original certification period, attempting, and successfully convincing airlines and regulators. Uh, Jedi mind-tricking, I believe was Boeing's term. To quote Mark Forkner, yes, that the 737 MAX did not require simulator training to pilot. Boeing is now recommending to the FAA that pilots receive simulator training before the aircraft returns to service.
1: Yep, so there goes the entire Max's selling point. The whole point of the thing was so that they could get pilots behind the uh stick there without really any retraining beyond a couple hours looking at an iPad. Um that didn't turn out too well. So Now pilots are going to have to be trained on the, I think, the 42 simulators that exist for the MAX. I might not have that number completely right, but it's in the low dozens. I
0: believe we're up to more than 42 at this point, but I need to double check the numbers. But the point is that there still aren't enough. No. so This is kind of funny. CAE is one of the major
1: manufacturers and operators of these very expensive, very technical simulators, and they said, um, "Yeah, we've just been turning turn- these bad boys out without any actual orders for them because we knew you were coming." Yeah, that, I mean, smart that says business. a lot. Yeah, I mean, smart business. I mean, these things cost tens of millions of dollars. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm making that up, but I'm pretty sure it's true. So to just be turning those out without any customers is a big deal.
0: Yeah and I I think that there may have been some discussion behind the scenes with individual airlines about you know we would like to have a few of these and yeah. how soon can you get them And, to and us. some airlines already have them today
1: American I believe United has one in Denver Southwest I'm not sure actually Air Canada has one Fiji Airways has one in in Fiji so if you want to you know retrain to fly a Max you can head out to Fiji there you go. I mean,
0: that doesn't sound too bad.
1: No, but this is – we'll get to this in the next point about the latest messages and emails released by Boeing. This was their major selling point for the MAX is that it would not require simulator training. and Airlines were asking for it and Boeing successfully convinced both airlines and the regulators that it was not needed. They have reverse course on that because it turns
0: out it's needed. Right. So Southwest, as a condition of of purchase and the design of this aircraft, said if our pilots require simulator training, you need to pay us per aircraft that we order for that simulator training. And the figure was about a million dollars per aircraft. Southwest has ordered over 200 737 Maxes.
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's so not that's a sizable change, chunk of change.
0: For Boeing, it's not exactly the end of the world right but i think and boeing's you know theory with this was that the certification would be easier and that airlines would be more apt to order if they could just stick a 737ng pilot into a 737 max after a couple hours on an ipad and call it a day but now boeing is rec- boeing can't mandate that uh, pilots receive uh, simulator training before returning to the aircraft, but they are recommending to the FAA, and, and we've seen no indication whatsoever that the FAA is not not inclined to take that recommendation from Boeing. So it seems almost 100% likely that pilots before the 737 MAX returns to commercial service will receive simulator training.
1: Yeah, it's uh, not a great situation for Boeing, but I, it should make passengers feel better about the reintroduction to service. So at least there's that and by the way the reintroduction to service um for some airlines has been pushed back yet again if you're keeping track this time American Airlines has pushed the reintroduction back to at least June 4th so that's another half a year from now
0: yeah uh, i mean th- this is not we're looking we're, at a minimum about a year and a half grounding we're, minimum. we're well beyond a year yeah of, of airlines and the US airlines Will likely be some of the first to put the, not the aircraft the back into and service.
1: For those keeping track at home, I, I looked through um, Americans' prior press releases about when they would reintroduce, when they maybe not were going p- to plan to reintroduce the MAX into their schedule, but when they had canceled the MAX in their schedule through. And it starts off clear my throat for this. It would be back on April 24th of last year, June 5th, August 19th, September 3rd, November 2nd, December 3rd, January 16th of this year, March 5th, April 7th, and now we are up to June 4th, more than a year after the original schedule cancellation. so I don't think anyone expected it to be quite this lengthy, but we're still at minimum for American Half a year away from a fleet
0: reintroduction. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in the last episode uh, of last year. I think episode 73, we briefly touched on this, where going back through the initial statements were there's a software patch. It's almost done. FA is going to look at it for a couple of weeks. We'll have the plane back in a year.
1: Yeah. It was almost like a don't even worry about it. We got this. The software is ready to go. Turns out none of that was true.
0: And I think the the ongoing i don't even want to call it positivity from boeing but that that was kind of unrealistically optimistic up until about december i want to say
1: yeah I, it's important to note that it wasn't the airline setting the it, yes the airlines were setting the dates but that was based on the best information given them given to them from boeing which turns out was completely fabricated out of nothing their software was not ready or maybe they thought it was ready but the more they keep digging the more Issues they found with the aircraft, and uh, obviously that
0: came to a pass when they fired their CEO. Right. So the the new CEO took over yesterday, Calhoun, who has been part of the company, was on the board and is now CEO. So he has sent out a message to the the Boeing employee base and and, and said, you know, we're, we're Moving towards you know transparency, we're going to be transparent in everything we do, and, and I really hope that's true because of the messages that came out that were released to the FAA and congressional investigators, but obviously also made their way into the the public sphere through some great reporting. Especially by the New York Times. They've done a, a very good job, I think, with this particular story as far as the documents are concerned and things like that, getting getting that and kind of contextualizing where they were coming from. But the messages between Boeing employees, especially some of the the test pilots, do not paint a pretty picture of both cer- the certification of the 737 Max, but also the company culture is just what is bad? happening over there so what what really bothers me is that this is a
1: direct quote from the press release that came out a couple hours i guess after these communications had come out, and I quote, "These communications do not reflect the company we are and need to be, and they are completely unacceptable. I think we've proven time and time again that this is who Boeing is. These communications completely reflect who Boeing is at this point. I don't think it's impossible to argue against that because some of these communications, the the emails, the IMs, they are so unbelievably toxic towards the company, towards their managers, towards the airlines, towards the regulators, towards the passengers that – I mean, I've said this before, I don't see how Boeing comes through this and I'm sure they will because corporations are corporations and nothing matters. But it's just – they need to own up that, yeah, we have a problem and we're looking to fix it. It's just this is who Boeing is and you can't argue against that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the first set of kind of messages that came out and then this second set are, I think, that a, a number of things. One, that you would feel comfortable saying those things, first of all. On company provided channels, c- comfortable? No, no, no. I, I'm not. I, that that's my second point. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm saying ahead. that you would feel comfortable saying those things. That that you wouldn't stop and think. You know, oh, when you're talking about Jedi mind tricks with convincing airlines that they don't need what they feel are are safety and quality items from you and, and selling them airplanes. Secondly, putting all of that. In a storable, easily searchable, and saved format is secondly incredible to me.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I said this on Twitter before, and I don't know if anyone, if everyone quite understands this, but everything you say and do over company channels is, is saved. It's, Indexed, it's searchable, it's easy to crop back up and maybe not everyone knows that, but you should. and I'm sure stuff like this happens at every major company that, that, that's not a question, but when you see like the, the chief chief technical pilot saying things like this, th- these are not underlings or people who aren't directly involved in the program. they are they're the leaders and the managers of this program
0: and it's disturbing. Yeah, so who knows what else is going to come out? but it doesn't seem like and I know we we've had John Ostar on the program a few times to talk about the 737 Max and I think each time he's been on he goes we are closer to the beginning of this than the end yeah I mean the, the, and I feel like that we're in the same we're in the same spot.
1: Yeah, the release goes on to say we regret the content of these communications. We apologize to the FAA. Notice how it starts off with the FAA, to the FAA, Congress, our airline customers and the flying public. We have made significant changes as a company to enhance our safety processes, organizations and culture, and I don't believe that for a second. Not to rank on Boeing even more cuz I feel like we've done that enough, but prove it at this point
0: and and we we've said it you know we said it 10 minutes ago we we've said it before in, in previous episodes Th- this has nothing to do with boeing it has everything to do with a company that has a problem that makes airplanes that people expect to be safe and whether it's boeing or airbus or or bobs biplanes i don't care what i want to know is that everyone in the company is working towards making This the safest form of transport that has ever existed, and those messages to me were like, "Oh, okay. If this is how you're talking about these types of things, what else? What else is happening in other programs?" Right.
1: And uh, speaking of other programs, some of the communications don't involve the triple seven X. So, <laughs>
0: or do involve
1: the triple seven X? Yeah, some of them yeah. do involve the triple seven X. So that's still clearly going under certification process. So I would hope the FAA would hit pause on that and start over. I don't want to say start over, but put it under an even bigger microscope at
0: this point because I don't know. Yeah, that's it, all I so, got. So we'll we'll leave it at that for the moment. And I I think that's really all the new information we have that we wanted to to discuss. But but I I think we'll leave it there for the moment. Shall we move into kind of a a quick wrap up of what happened as far as orders and deliveries this year, And, and then we'll talk about a few things, including the. I hesitate to call it a hard landing because it's the first time I've ever seen, ever seen the, the gear come through oh, the floor. I forgot about we'll, that. we'll get to that. Yeah. So let's quickly talk about some some orders and deliveries, and then move on from there. So I've got Boeing's pulled up first, and I guess we'll just stick stick with Boeing. But they delivered far fewer aircraft this year than they had in past years, mostly if not completely due to the uh the grounding of the 737 Max and the inability to to deliver those aircraft. So in 2019, Boeing delivered 127 737s, most of those uh, in, in the first quarter. Seven 747s, seven, all cargo variants, and I want to say all to UPS. Probably. But there may have been yeah, I think all to UPS. 43 767s, uh still going strong there, mostly to cargo carriers, all to cargo carriers, mostly to FedEx, I believe. And then 45 sevens and 158 737s for a total of 380 commercial aircraft.
1: Right. And year over year, that compares to 806 aircraft delivered in 2018. 580 of which were the 737 only that's 580 in 2018 127 in 2019 who would have thought that the 787 would be the aircraft that is overwhelmingly the most delivered by Boeing for the year as you said 45 were delivered in 2019 39 were delivered in 2018 so the production rate actually went up a bit which is pretty nice to see but the 787 is uh Boeing's old reliable airplane at this point.
0: Yeah, the deliveries are are obviously going to be skewed this year assuming that the 737 Max does in fact return to service. So, taking that assumption at face value, the deliveries will obviously be heavily skewed as far as the 737 is concerned. But yeah, not a good year for Boeing all around. No. Don't forget, we're also counting
1: all those Qatar 787s that were sort of delivered, but not really in the 2019
0: totals. Yeah, we we didn't talk about that because that happened over the break. So Explain that because this is one of those things that Makes perfect sense in in an industry sense, yeah. It it makes perfect sense in it, and I was going to say in an industry sense. Sure, how many were there? There ended up being seven, I want to say. So, Qatar is taking delivery of some new
1: 787-9s, I believe, or at least that was the plan. But Boeing produced the aircraft, they had fulfilled their obligation, but unfortunately. The interior for those aircraft was not quite ready. The we should say that this is not a Boeing
0: issue. Right. This is Boeing not a Boeing issue. Boeing did everything they were supposed to. The, Boeing made the, the airplanes seats, and they were, yeah.
1: they were sitting around up in Everett, but unfortunately, the interiors were not ready for them. The interiors are produced and furnished by, uh, in this case, a third party that were not ready. This is not a unique thing to Qatar or Boeing. It happens to Airbus all the time. But in this case, they had seven airplanes sitting around that they were contractually obligated to deliver to Qatar by the end of the year. So, right before the end of the year, they flew 787s from Everett all the way to Qatar. And then they gassed them up and they flew them all the way back to the west coast of the US, I think to Victorville, most of them. Yep. yep um, they're all in Victorville. Them- right back into storage. and People, me included, were pretty pissed off that to fulfill uh, legal obligations to officially take delivery of them, they had to fly them all the way to the opposite end of the world and then fly them all the way back.
0: I mean, I understand. I understand it, but it's stupid. I understand 100% why they did it. What I don't understand is they knew this was coming. They knew it was going to happen. Why not write some sort of Secondary contract. Why not right. add a? There, there's
1: always a way to fudge the numbers or to make, create it, an it extension so or or something. But to fly seven Dreamliners all the way to the opposite end of the world and then back again, it was, uh, for it, really no so reason, is not good when you're an industry trying to play it off like you're you're green and you're environmentally friendly. When you do stuff like that, it just you can't hide it.
0: Yeah, the the whole idea that we're building on sustainability and environmental, you know, that th- then you turn and your hand gets forced to do this. It, it kind of uh, doesn't look good. And so I, to speak. I don't
1: know if Airbus or I'm sorry or Boeing or Qatar ever even put out a statement about it because maybe they thought it was just best to ignore it. But again, this was not a Boeing thing. This was a Qatar thing, a legal thing, a leasing company thing. I don't know, but. Doesn't make it right. Yeah,
0: so the reason they had to do it was because the aircraft has to enter Qatari airspace to technically be delivered, and then the paperwork can be signed and the the leasing and the financing can begin. Until then, it can't, and so they had to bring them to Qatar. They couldn't just fly them right. straight and, from and, from. And it kind of annoyed victory. me that
1: a lot of people, a number of people on Twitter, replied saying, "Oh, you're you're blowing this out of proportion." A lot of times when. Airbus aircraft are delivered through France, they have to fly through UK airspace or something, or Irish airspace where they're leased from on their way to to Italy or whatever. And Yeah, that adds like, what, an hour of flight time, maybe less. We're not talking about literally an entire day's worth of flying across seven aircraft. Proportionally, these two things are quite a bit different. Both yeah, yeah. stupid-
0: but one is proportionately way exactly. more stupid. You would think by now we would have figured out how to, I don't know, sign paperwork over the internet or something. I, I don't know. Let's quickly do Airbus and their deliveries, and then we'll we'll talk about the this week's news, and then we will call it a, a show. Call it a year. We'll call it. We'll be. We'll be back next year, kids. Airbus delivered eight hundred and sixty-three aircraft, up from the previous year's eight hundred. So Those numbers include 112 A350s, 41 A330 Neos, and 85% of the 642 A320 family deliveries, or 551 if, if you're a fan of numbers and not percentages, were the Neo variety. A lot of airplanes. Customers also took home 48 A220s. Oh, that's nice.
1: But um, so, uh, remember, yeah. Airbus is not free of fault and issue here. They are still grappling with their own center of gravity issue on the A320neos. So, yeah, that's still a thing. I, I said we're an equal opportunity hater, and many Airbus
0: A320neo operators. It's not even a hating thing. It's like I mean, I, it's I, like just a thing. It's the get, thing. Yeah, it's it's just these are these are things that are happening. And for those of you unfamiliar with Airbus's corporate history. I would say go read a book. Oh, However, you can you? The book was taken off the shelves. It, n- it never made it to the shelves. Well, it was it was taken off of a pre-order or something like that. But there's plenty historical, I don't even know what the word is, but plenty of bad things that done on plenty you know, of historical precedents that
1: Airbus can also be a crappy company at times and have a toxic corporate culture. So there it's you not go.
0: unique to any one company. It it's just Boeing's turn. That is well put. So, 863 deliveries. They've got uh, 768 orders on the year, and I think today they just announced uh, 40 new A330neo orders. Those were undisclosed, though. Yeah. So, so they uh, they're disclosed now. Oh, they announced they but announced undisclosed the customer. order, but they announced the yeah the the customer remains undisclosed. Petromallair. It could be. It could be Petromallair. So there you go. What else do we have to talk about? Let's talk about Delta. Oh. Because they suffered an engine failure of some kind. First reports make it sound like it was a compressor stall. It happens. On a 777 departing Los Angeles. So They departed and they began dumping fuel. The 777 is one of the aircraft as most large body aircraft, most wide body aircraft can jettison fuel to get the aircraft below a certain weight called the maximum wan- maximum landing weight. It's not a maximum landing weight, but we'll go with it. The maximum landing weight is the weight at, at which the manufacturer of the aircraft says it is safe to land. Anything above that is possible, obviously, but it then requires a number of checklists and inspections and things like that and flying from Los Angeles to Shanghai the aircraft is carrying a lot of fuel and is well above its maximum landing weight so they jettison fuel to lower the fuel weight possibly not even below the maximum landing weight just to just to lower the fuel weight as much as they could on the return unfortunately in so doing at a low altitude they passed over a school and the fuel did not vaporize in time before it hit the ground, and it, uh, there are now uh, 23 patients. It didn't specify whether or not they were students and teachers or I a combination saw, uh, thereof. Seventeen children and nine adults. Okay, so seventeen children. So the numbers went up a bit to uh, that were affected in being uh, checked out by Yeah, so and, this, this and one is EMTs. strange.
1: I mean, flights do occasionally dump fuel. That's not that uncommon, unfortunately, but. Typically, you you see it over the middle of nowhere or out over the ocean. ATC will route these flights over the Pacific or some sort of open body of water because there there are procedures for this. The FAA put out a statement, thankfully, a few minutes ago that I'll, I'll read in its entirety now. The FAA is thoroughly investigating the circumstances behind today's incident involving a Delta Airlines flight that was returning to LAX airport. There are special fuel dumping procedures for aircraft operating into and out of any major US airport. These procedures call for fuel to be dumped over designated unpopulated areas, typically at higher altitudes, so the fuel atomizes and disperses before it reaches the ground. End quote. None of that happened. So they were, I think, only at 4,000 feet when you need to be higher than that. They were most certainly not over an unpopulated area because it was over LA and that's about as dense as it gets. So, the fuel did not atomize before it reached the ground and it happened to be caught on video from multiple angles and happened over a school. But again, as we always kind of say, pilots have a wide array of discretion when it comes to emergencies like this. If that's what they thought they needed to do to get on the ground safely, that's what they're going to do. But it's going to be interesting to see what the FAA turns up in this
0: investigation because this probably shouldn't have happened. Right there there will be a thorough investigation if only from a from a uh, procedural safety point of view. Yeah, procedural point of view and, and a safety issue to see what happened with the aircraft it'll be interesting to note what you know kind of what happened here um it, it, it I think it's important to note there are regulations that say in an emergency the pilots are are allowed to deviate from procedures and regulations and guidelines to the extent that Safety requires it, um, so we don't know what was happening on the aircraft. We don't know what the emergency to the pilots was at this point. We only know exactly the return path and where they came in and what happened. So we will certainly be following the FAA investigation closely because it, it'll be interesting to see why this was deviated from. We've seen emergency returns to LAX a number of times. Generally, they head out over the ocean about ten to twelve thousand feet. They circle for a while, dumping fuel, and then return to the airport once they're safely below landing weight. This aircraft made an initial right hand turn and came right back to the airport. Right. So, Which obviously, the, the pilots wanted to get the aircraft if on the ground. It really was just a, a single
1: engine compressor stall because you turn that engine off and you operate on the other one, but we don't know what was going on.
0: Right. So, so as we learn more, we'll return to this in, in a future episode for, for certain. Let's close the show by talking about the Nordwind Airline that now so There have been a couple of hard landings that have surprised us. The Delta 757 that experienced the hard landing in Ponta da Gata has been fully repaired and returned to commercial service. Hey. That's good. The Nordwind Airline a twenty, that one's not coming back. Ooh, uh, yeah. Mostly because the big hole in the floor well, the nose gear came into the cabin.
1: Yeah, that's a new one. Um, at least for me. I, I haven't seen that before. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but maybe they landed nose first. I, I don't know what you're not supposed to do. But the top of the nose gear met the bottom of the floor and actually punctured the floor of the cabin. And you can. It, Look at the cabin. You can see the top of the uh, nose gear, and you can see the the kind of actually really interesting to see that like the honeycomb texture underneath the floor that makes up the uh, I guess the what you would
0: not normally ever get to see, which is pretty cool. But how does that happen? So the statement that the airline released said while conducting a go around due to wind shear, a hard landing occurred. So this does make sense in, in context. They then continued the go around and subsequently made a safe landing. So. Obviously something was the hard landing damaged the nose gear and then the subsequent landing, who knows, may have been what pushed it through the the floor. But but either way, they ended up with a, a nose gear in the cabin. Yeah, that's
1: uh hey, send Delta's text out there. Maybe they'll fix it up.
0: <laughs> it's like we've already repaired a seven five seven from what everyone thought was going to be a, a recycling scenario. What's next? You can't just let a good seven five go. They're not making them anymore. They're not making them anymore. That's a whole separate podcast. That was a, a, a two weeks that I do not want to ever want to ever have to discuss again. But we will return to all of these stories uh, because there's certainly more to come, and these are all things that we're following closely as the year begins. Hopefully, in the next few episodes, we'll have much more. Positive news to share about some of these things and some some other things that we're going to be doing. We have some some cool trips coming up, both Jason and I, that we're both looking forward to. Uh, that we're going to bring you some good stuff from, and we want to take the opportunity to uh, say thank you for listening. And we hope that the rest of the year turns out much better than than the first two weeks. This has been episode seventy five of Av Talk. Yeah, it has. I am Ian Pechnik here, thankfully, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening.